Hello and welcome to Four Questions. I am delighted to be here with a wonderfully brilliant Professor Barbara Risman from the University of Illinois at Chicago and the Institute of Advanced Study at Durham. She's written this fascinating new book that I, I found so interesting um, about millennials and where millennials will take us. So since the 1960s, we've seen colossal changes in gender relations, huge surges in women's labor force participation, but the rate of progress has slowed. The gender pay gap persists, as does sexual harassment and women's burden of care work. So many of us wonder, has the gender revolution stalled? Where are we headed? Tell me, are, are millennials more liberal than earlier generations? Oh, that's a great question, and it's not an easy one to answer. Statistically, what we find in terms of attitudes in, about gender is that the big attitudes among Americans changed when the baby boomers were in their uh, 20s. That's the moment in all the, all the longitudinal attitudinal data that attitudes started changing. Sexual revolution, 68 kind of time. 68, 70s. Yeah. Uh, and that the millennials have not turned a corner and gotten more conservative, as some have argued, but they're also not, as a group, in this big quantitative data sense, yeah. more liberal. Now, Interesting. So, the gender, in terms of attitudes, the gender revolution has stalled, then? It, well, it has. It has. It has since about the 1990s. Okay. Uh, but, what I wanted to understand was why, and I think in my research on the millennials, what I suggest is that part of the reason the quantitative data are stalled, at least attitudinal, mm -hmm. is because we have kind of a um, divisiveness and different attitudes among millennials. Part the millennial generation in America is the most diverse ever. Mm -hmm. They're the highest percentage of immigrants mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. And so what I found in my qualitative research is that some millennials are far more radical than any generation before them, and others are probably more conservative. Oh, I see. And so this so is just the error of looking at averages. Exactly. I think we have such uh, uh, diverse population in Americans, young people today, that we get the problem of averages. Mm. With everything's looking the same, I think instead what we have is an explosion of uh, attitudes, some of which are far more radical, mm. and some of which are more conservative. Rule number one, never look at national averages. Exactly. Okay, alright, so let's look at the qualitative work then. In what ways do you see millennials challenging gendered expectations? Okay, so in my research on millennials, what I found is that uh, there's two ways in which they're challenging. One is they continue to be the kind of innovators who I might have called second wave feminists in another generation who are against gender stereotypes, who do not want there to be any opportunities or constraints, any different whether or not you're a woman or a man, and they fight against it in the way they uh, run their own lives, the way they try to be sensitive and ambitious. Mm. Uh, but what's different here among millennials is it isn't only women. Men are uh, you can't tell the difference in how some men and women talk about this. And mm. that, I think, is quite different from earlier generations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Um, and so that's one difference. The, uh, another difference is a small but very vocal and culturally very present mm. uh, group of young people who are really rebelling against 
categories themselves, uh, postmodern, you might think of this as kind of a postmodern um, uh, attribute, but people who say, I don't want to be male or female, I'm in the middle. I, I not only reject the fact that if I'm a woman I should be the caretaker or a guy, I should be the one who asks people on dates and a breadwinner, I reject the very notion that I should display my body in one way or another mm. simply because my sex is male or female. Mm -hmm. And so those kind of rebels, that I think is quite new. Mm. People who, rather than rejecting gender stereotypes, are actually rejecting gender categories. And so those are two ways in which I see um, millennials really uh, pushing forward on the gender revolution. I also see probably uh, just as many millennials so confused that they really don't know. Mm. That they're very, that when you interview them, their interviews are kind of chaotic. You can't mm. believe this one person is making one argument in the beginning of the interview and then saying something else mm. later. That the expectations that they've faced in their lives are so wildly different from mm. one boyfriend or girlfriend to the other parents. Which again goes back to the danger of looking at quantitative data because if you're just doing a survey asking people a set of questions that you think are important, you maybe blink into these whole other dimensions and, and contextual Absolutely. variation. Yeah. You, you don't know, you don't get any emergent stories that yeah, way. Yeah. You also, as you mentioned at the beginning, I think, have the power of false averages mm -hmm. when you only look at big data sets. So besides looking at the different ways in which people enact or comply or sometimes conform with gender expectations, one thing I think was really interesting in your book was you were saying that many of these ways that people challenge gender expectations are through their, their own individual acts, like how they dress, how they behave, how they seek for higher opportunities in work, also, you know, constructing peer support, so, you know, reaching out, finding like-minded feminists um, and having online support groups. And I, I wonder, is that enough? Are those individual acts enough to challenge the gender structure as a whole? Oh, that's a great question. I think that they help. Everything, every, uh, every part of uh, the gender structure needs challenging. But I don't think it's enough. I think what happened in this generation is that they grew up in kind of an air where a very neoliberal ideology, where everything was about the individual, right? Mm -hmm. and, and they're growing up in a moment where our welfare system was destroyed and built on personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. Everything is about the self. And so even when they talk about making change, they the way they talk about it is through the self. I'm not, I'm not this way, or I'm going to change the way my, uh, I have relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think that is important because uh, change happens in lots of different ways, and if lots of people challenge the, uh, the way that uh, women are supposed to uh, only be caretakers, then, mm -hmm. then institutions will have to yeah. change that. But I don't think that's enough because that uh, presumes that gender is really just about who we are as individuals. Mm -hmm. And actually, at least in my theoretical work, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's pretty clear that gender isn't just about identities and how we perform. It's certainly part 
that's mm-hmm. a big part of it. But I think sometimes that gets too much emphasis because we live in such a neoliberal era mm. that's everything about the individual. I think that in terms of gender, we have to think of it as a structure of inequality and that that has implications for individuals, but it also has, no matter what you or I decide to do as individuals, we are going to face certain expectations in social settings, Yeah. Uh, no matter what we want. Mm-hmm. You know, in a corporate setting, a guy may still turn to an equal and say, are you going to get coffee? Uh, and just, and we know from lots of research that that woman and man, vice president, when she gives a lot of direct orders, somebody's going to call her a bitch. Mm. They're going to think he mm. is a really strong leader. And so that you know, even if as individuals we've rejected all these, uh, inter- you know, this I have to be nice because I'm a woman, well, when I'm not nice, when I'm directive, mm. people won't like me. Oh, yeah. yeah Barbara, I don't, I, I don't think I ever told you, but I went for two university interviews, and after both of them, the direct feedback that I got was that they thought I was too assertive, too direct, too com- You know, they didn't like that style of approach. Right. And, uh, and you know. absolutely. And if you had been a man, no doubt, nobody would have even noticed mm-hmm. that because mm-hmm. that's how you know you sort of like a male professor who's a little bit arrogant and sure of himself. That's how you know he's really smart, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's expectations that doesn't matter who we are as individuals, but beyond that, gender is actually embedded both in the way we run our institutions and then also in our larger uh, cultural ideology. Yeah. And so that uh, when you think about uh, workplaces, a post-industrial world which still runs its workplaces where workers are expected to be somewhere at 8 in the morning or 8.30 in the morning till 5.30 or 6. Well, in your country, 48 weeks a year. In my country, 50 weeks a year with no flexibility for taking care of infants, sick people, or elderly people means that the best or the ideal worker has a wife. Yeah, so, I mean, this or doesn't is a, need one. And so yeah, this that you is build a, gender inequality in the, the definition of being a good worker. This is sort of Joan Acker came up with this in and, the 1990s. Uh, and Kathleen Gerson's book on this, right. highlighting that many people want to be more egalitarian, Absolutely. but because workplaces have these certain expectations, right. and because your peers have these expectations, and organizations are run this way, it's very difficult Absolutely. to step outside. So even you've got these people who want to have the gender revolution, but our organizations are Absolutely, you. and they're in that sense they're pushed out. Mm. Often women then get pushed out. They yeah. don't want to opt out. Because it becomes individually economically rational right. to make those choices given the institution. Absolutely. Uh, and so that just trying to make these changes as individuals doesn't work. And the reason the women get pushed out sometimes it's economic because in a heterosexual mm. couple women are still less likely yeah to earn as much, but not at all. A third of all heterosexual couples in America now, mm-hmm. women earn more money. But they're still more likely to be pushed out because the cultural belief yeah. around motherhood and fatherhood is so different. Mm-hmm. Think of, you know, to father a child versus to mother a child. Yeah. What those yeah, words mean mm-hmm. in, in, a cult, in a very deep cultural way. And so that the notion that one can overcome uh, gender 
by behaving differently in one's personal relationships, I think is naive. Yeah. It isn't that that doesn't matter, that that's not part of what has to happen, but that alone doesn't really push the gender revolution. Mm. i tell you, one of my favorite papers, I mean, uh, one thing I found really interesting is when men take parental leave. Mm -hmm. And there's a great, uh, I think it's by Sunny Thebold, and they find that men are most likely to take parental leave when it's well paid and transferable, i.e. when there's an economic incentive to do it. But also what really matters, they find, is men are more likely to do it in countries or societies where lots of other men are taking parental leave. When you see other men doing it, when you realise it's normal, when you don't think other men will say, ah, you know, who's wearing the trousers, what are you doing? When other people do it, when you see other people doing it, when you don't think you'll be reprimanded, mocked, derided, right. then you too partake. It's, you know, it's all about these wider expectations. Right. So that, that's really what's going on then, is it's changing at the cultural level mm. of acceptability allows people at the individual level to feel more comfortable to make those choices. But then here's the really tricky thing because how do you get it to get more because here's the big coordination problem because even if you have a law allowing men to take parental leave if men don't see other men taking take parental leave they one individual won't do it because unilateral deviation Absolutely. is costly you worry that no one else will do it but you might have all these men you know you've got a situation of pluralistic ignorance all right. these men would quite like right. to take parental leave right. but they don't think anyone else will so they don't think you'll be supported right. so well, how do you change one, one that? way around this that some countries are are um, experimenting mm -hmm. with, which I'm sure you know, is the use it or lose it leaves. Right. Where a heterosexual couple mm -hmm. gets so many, you know, yeah, yeah. and they only get half of them mm -hmm. if only the mother takes them. So that it's a way in which if you don't take this leave, your family doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is one of those incentives mm -hmm. to try to uh, overcome yeah because I think just like in your work with the uh, finding that uh, women in high places and becoming very visible being effective changes what people think about women we have to find a similar way yeah with, and I think the use it or lose it uh, parental leaves are at least uh, okay, a volley so that, yeah. in that game mm. to try to make um, men mm. in caring roles more visible. Well, I guess the use it or lose it thing helps because it provides an economic incentive where you might as well do right. it. But I guess it doesn't change that other dimension, the expectation about what other men are doing. And here, right. what I think is quite powerful, uh, and I've been reading about, is TV. So, for example, there, was so, there are so many studies in India and Brazil and also in Uganda how gender ed expectations of behavior can change after seeing TV. I don't know if I talk about this, this amazing work in Brazil. So, after getting the uh, satellite television signal, mm -hmm. the rate of divorces went up. Why might that be? Because people were watching these telenovelas whereby these women were leaving unhappy marriages and going off and living with, you know, by themselves as independent single mothers. And people were watching this and saying, wow, wow. I, yeah, I can do it. I can. Yeah, and so then the rate of divorces went up. Also, fertility went down, and then there were similar studies in India finding the fertility wow. went down, and there's another great study in Uganda, and they were showing, they, so it was nice, they, uh, they filmed, they made uh, films with Ugandans showing women reporting gender-based violence. 
and being supported by others. And then after watching these TV series, other Ugandan women were much more likely to say, I would be happy to go and report violence. I think other people in my community would support. So there's the really interesting thing about these TV studies is they don't just try to change people's internalized ideologies, right. they try to change their expectations. So by seeing these, so they don't say you should report gender-based violence. What they're showing you is that other women just yeah. like you are doing it and being supported wow. by others. So yeah, I think those, and there was um, this great Netflix uh, se uh, movie that I watched with Paul Rudd and it's called The Fundamentals of Caring. And he's a male carer for a disabled child and never once in that film do they remark upon it being unusual for there to be a male carer, though of course we know it is. But I think films like that can play a nice role in sort of normalizing. Absolutely, absolutely. I wonder, uh, the sociologist in me yeah. wonders if there's a way to set up an experiment yeah. um, around such, you know, showing such films and doing pre and post tests. Yeah, so the, the Brazilian, the Indian one, and the Ugandan one, they're all experiments. They, they compare oh, different really? groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh it's groovy. I'll send you that. It's very groovy. Yeah, yeah, I'll send it to you. Yeah. Okay, but wait. So, okay, so we could use films, we could use government policies. But in your book, you also highlight something else that we really need, and that's collective organizing. I, I do think that that makes a huge difference. And in the era, and it's already, time moves so quickly. Yeah. Okay, so it never occurred to me when I was um, collecting data in 2012 and 13 that by 2018 it might seem like another era. <laughs> yeah. But actually, in the American context, it was another era. Mm. It's the pre-Trump era. Mm. It's an era where young people believed we lived in some kind of post-feminist world, mm. that uh, feminism was their mother's mm. generation, yeah. that, it, that we were beyond that. Mm. Uh, and so it was very, what was left, they all saw, they had in some senses been taught that we live in an equal world, mm. and I think they were taught that way, way to try to create it, but mm. I think there was a backfiring, which yeah. is that they presumed that whatever equal, inequality still existed must be their own fault mm. or their own selfhood. Mm. And now I think the shock mm. of a president having been elected after um, evidence of him if nothing else, being incredibly disrespectful of mm -hmm. women, but really probably mm -hmm. sexually harassing mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. uh, it was such a shock that, you know, you saw immediately mm -hmm. that women's march, which was filled with mm -hmm. women of all ages, mm -hmm. including lots and lots of millennial women. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't that there were not millennial activists all along. There's a lovely book by Alison Crossley, on Facebook feminism. I don't actually remember the title of the book, but it's about how college women are, were actively sort of um, changing people's opinions or talking to them, doing activism cool. online. But it, I think it, it created a face-to-face -face kind of movement yeah. that was... Uh, women have now taken to the streets. Women right. and men, to be yeah, fair. Absolutely. And why is so important? Why does that matter? Uh, because I think historically we've seen most change, legislative change, really happen when social movements push. But okay, but wait a minute. Trump isn't going to legislate in response to these women's movements. So are these women's no, movements but pointless? No, uh, but unless this women's movement and the Me Too mm, kind of activism yeah. uh, doesn't succeed in ch eventually um, 
change in who's electable. Mm, yeah, yeah, things aren't going to change, you know. And so I think that there was there was a sense of um, I think there was almost a sense of inevitability of social change before 2016. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I would be guilty yeah. of that. I always thought we were going forward. Absolutely. I never considered to be truthful with you. I didn't. I thought. As people saw more women in top positions, as people saw more women professors, we would all go forward and we would I, become inspired and emboldened. I, I never thought, thought we would go backwards in terms of race, in terms of gender, and I'm, so I was surprised by Trump. I was surprised by Brexit. And yeah, so was I, and I think for these young people, they were surprised and they were shocked yeah. because they lived in an era where they'd never seen anything but a black. They barely remembered anything but a black president mm -hmm. who was married to a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they you know, and so I think that during the era that I collected data, I guess we got world, complacent, right? Complacent, we took, we took uh, progress for granted. Absolutely, and and excuse <coughs> me, and the sense that the larger issues were solved, and so anything left is my responsibility. Mm. I think what happened with the Trump. Mm. And I think Trump's selection is responsible for the Me Too movement mm. in the United States. Mm. There was a sense of shock and horror mm. among other women who had been sexually harassed or abused that this man could get elected despite everybody knowing mm. that he'd done this, mm. right? And so that there was, I think that was a kind of a... Uh, corner turn. I don't know, that's, that's it. I wonder with the, for me, I interpret the Me Too not necessarily about people's disgust and horror about sexual harassment being common or that it happening, but I think Me Too really picked up when we saw other women being supported. When we yes. saw people coming out and saying that I'm with you and I believe you and, right. and this is totally unjust. Right, but don't you think that that is partly because people realized that it wasn't inevitably going to get yeah, better. Yeah, no, sure. Just so we needed to mobilize. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think, yeah, absolutely. And I think even I'm if, not saying no, that no, there's no, a sure, no, 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 of course, here. yeah, no, of I'm course, just, oh, God, no. <laughs> But I think even, and I think going beyond legislation, that we can make the argument that marching is important for creating a sense of solidarity, for showing this widespread resistance. Yeah. You know, because we could get despondent. We could think that even if we're privately critical, others will not be with us. But when you see seas of people, yeah, when you see, you know, from, I saw footage of people in Alaska and they're like against the blizzard and it's a snowstorm. But they're still out there marching. I mean, that really galvanizes you, right? Absolutely. It's part of changing that cultural mm. level of analysis, that worldview, that what is acceptable, what do other people believe, and, yeah. you know, and I think that that's really important. So, so that's one key argument of the book, that millennials are trying to challenge these uh, gendered expectations, but maybe historically, uh, up to five years ago, so it was primarily at the individual level, right. and through local support groups, but not necessarily mass organising. Right. And that's what we really need in order to change our institutions, laws and organisations. Right. And in that sense, the book is... I hate to say it, but it's, it's dated or a little bit of social history by the yeah. time it comes out because who knew that the world was going to change? Well, I think that's an argument for the marches. It's saying, yeah. look, this is why we need yeah. that. Okay, but then the, the final chapter of your book was very interesting because you don't want gender equality. I don't want gender equality. Well, I do want gender equality. But you don't think that's enough? I just don't think that 
we can really have equality between the sexes as long as gender is, exists as a social structure. Okay, tell me about that. Tell me about that. Okay, so the, I think long ago in um, American politics, in Brown versus Board of Education, mm -hmm. we made the decision that as long as you had a separate world for blacks and whites, mm -hmm. that world was never going to be equal. Yeah. And I think that there's an analogy there around sexes, which is we have a history of women and men having different social roles mm -hmm. throughout many societies mm -hmm. over, and in fact, in pre-industrial, in times where women do not control their fertility, mm -hmm. in some senses, that's really hard to, uh, hard to find a way out of. Yeah. In a world where women control their fertility, this, the reproductive differences between the sexes become not totally irrelevant, mm -hmm. but in a lifespan that is 85 years, mm -hmm. uh, for the average female who has children, that's only two of those years involved in reproduction. Mm, right. And even within that, of many smaller months, where the biology of reproduction is at the center of the daily universe. Yeah. And so that we no longer need a world where we have distinctive norms or rules or expectations or a society organized around a, a model where women are carers and men are not. Right. Sure. Because as long as you have that, women will never have be equal players. Mm -hmm. And so, in some sense, it's some basic differentiation by gender, by sex, has been women as carers mm -hmm. and men uh, in the public sphere. Yeah. And so I think the next phase of a women's movement, or it ought to be not a women's movement, but a movement actually to overcome gender itself. Mm -hmm. We will have always uh, sex categories that matter for reproduction, mm -hmm. but beyond reproduction, our sex categories should cease to matter in the way we organize society. Why are sex categories harmful? Why are they a problem? Why are sex categories a problem? Mm -hmm. I don't think sex categories are a problem. I think gender categories okay, are Okay, why are gender categories a problem? Because gender categories are literally defined by expectations right. that differ mm -hmm. by sex category. Mm -hmm. And as long as you have... Why is it that we continue to presume that um, if you like lacy fabric, you must somehow be a female? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, if you like to be very directive and aggressive and um, get things done effectively without a lot of uh, socio-emotional work, mm. you somehow ought to be masculine and a male, right? So that the, the, we need, I'm not saying that sex categories are a problem. I think that we cannot presume, and I do think that sometimes uh, postmodernists Mm. go a step too far because in fact we are a biological species and we reproduce and there are different functions of sex categories in the act of reproduction. Mm. Beyond that, we don't need gender categories. I don't think we need them in how we raise our children, to what kind of toys they play with, what kind of clothes they wear, how we do their hair. Um, 
we don't need them and what we expect from each other, that that leads to all kinds of cognitive bias. Okay, so individually we cannot, we should, we should, individually and collectively through protests we should try to unleash these chains. So ensure that any girl can play with any toy, etc. Are there any, are there any domains in which you think gender identity should still be preserved and protected? So for example, we might say, going back to our early example, I might become inspired and confident in my possibilities in academia after seeing brilliant women like you as professors. So, and there's, and people make, the, the, and then there's lots of evidence to show that through exposure to women in top positions and socially valued roles, we begin to question our gender stereotypes. We recognize that women are equally competent. So people use that, that sort of evidence to make the argument for gender quotas. You know, if only we have a proportion of, if we cap men's dominance in politics and employment, then we will enable more exposure to women's competence, undermine gender stereotypes. Is there an argument that in some cases it might be useful to retain these gender identities and rules in order to promote equality? Sure, I mean, I think that's the underlying um, argument in a very old and classic book by Judith Lorber called Paradoxes of Gender, that in order to eventually undermine the category, we may have to make it very visible first. Mm. And I absolutely think that strategy, mm. it, political strategy is quite different than a kind of utopian right. end goal. So our utopian end goal, goal is the destruction. Right. But for right now we might have a little bit of affirmative action. Absolutely. Absolutely. 